Recruitment Journeys is brought to you in partnership with Vincere, the all-in-one CRM for ambitious recruitment businesses. No matter what your recruitment journey is, whether it's contract, temp, exec search or perm, if you're looking for a new breed of tech partner to help accelerate growth, speak to Vincere. Visit vincere.io forward slash mint for an exclusive offer for all subscribers of this podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Recruitment Journeys podcast series. My name is Pete Watson from Mint Recruitment, and we're in Ottawa, or Rec to Rec, whatever you want to call us. And as an Ottawa, we spend all day, every day, talking to recruiters about their careers. That's kind of what we do. We've been around since 2004, placing recruiters into Australia, the UK, Asia, and the US. And in those 15 years, we've seen pretty much every direction in which a recruiter can take their own personal recruitment career. So in this podcast series, we're going to interview recruiters all on a different path, each with a different destination, and we're going to hear their individual stories about how they got to where they are today. So if you're a recruiter and you're thinking about your next chapter or your future journey, and you just want to hear about how others did it before you, then please sit back and enjoy Recruitment Journeys. So thank you for tuning into episode three of the Recruitment Journeys podcast series, which we are calling the Build and Sell Specialist. And we were incredibly lucky to welcome to the show a man who has possibly and probably more credentials in this area than any other person in the Australian recruitment industry. His name is Greg Savage, uh, and he knows a few things about getting recruitment businesses ready for sale. Greg was amazing in this interview and imparted much more gold nuggets of advice than I ever thought was possible in a 40-minute chat. But if you want to hear what a 40-year career looks like where not a single minute was wasted, you need to listen to this podcast. But before I hand you over to Greg, please be sure to check out his new book, The Savage Truth, which provides all of Greg's life and leadership and business lessons gained over his 40-year career. Hope you enjoy the interview. Greg Savage, good afternoon and, uh, and thank you so much for being involved in Recruitment Journeys, the podcast series. It's a pleasure, looking forward to it. Cheers Greg. Uh, now look, I've, Greg, I've already given you a bit of a, an intro earlier in the podcast, but uh, just for fun, let's, let's pretend that there might be four or five people out there who <laughs> don't, don't know who you are. Would you be kind enough to uh, introduce yourself in your own words? Sure. Well, look, it's 40 years uh, in recruitment, so I'll give you the very short version. Started uh, as a recruiter in Australia, spent a couple of years with accountancy personnel in London, which is the company that became Hayes, actually, back with them in Australia, and then started my own business, Recruitment Solutions, which is one of the highlights. That was 12, 13 years, and we built that business from five or six of us to 250, and we listed on the stock exchange. So that was a a great journey, a lot of learning and uh, trading through a big recession. Uh, and then I had 10 years with Aquent, which is an American marketing digital recruiter. I was the international CEO, which uh, means, in American speak, it means everything outside America. Yeah. And uh, again, um, two, two sides to a coin there where we grew the business uh, for the first seven or eight years substantially. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, I know the figures because I've included them in my new book. And uh, we went from 5 million turnover to 100, from no profit to 9 million. And then after the Lehman Brothers disaster in 2009, the GFC, as they call it in Australia, we, we lost $50 million of revenue in one year. Wow. So that was tr- tricky to deal with. 
Did you did you sleep that night? Uh, well, uh, we we had built thirty five offices in seventeen countries under under my um, remit, and so the problems were and the challenges were literally from Japan to Barcelona and from Adelaide to um, to Amsterdam, literally, and, and of course a lot of other places. So very challenging, and and a reality check for me because I thought you know I'd had a golden run. And uh, however, we did fix it, and out of that came the birth of Firebrand, which was a business of mine where we bought. Ten of the offices of Aquint in a management buyout, and three or four years later, I sold that. And for the last seven years, I've been acting as an advisor in the industry. I'm on the board mm. of fourteen recruitment companies and tech, HR tech, mm. and I do a bit of public speaking. Perfect. Thank you, Greg. Quite the intro. So, look, the, the the purpose, just to quickly give you the concept of this podcast series, it's all about it's called recruitment journeys. It's all about talking to people who have you know carved a path um, and trailblazed with the hope to inspire people that might want to you know, look at your profile, look at your career and, and try to emulate, if indeed even surpass that career. So just keen to have a chat with you about, you know, you have a lot of recruitment journeys that we can focus on, but I think the one that I'd be very keen to, to, to hone in on is your thoughts around building and preparing a business for sale. Because uh, clearly that's something that you have a lot of experience in. And let's be honest, when recruitment entrepreneurs start a recruitment business, it's kind of what they've got in sight. Uh, you know, at, at the end of the rainbow. So I'm just keen to get your whole view on the whole M&A world and, and, and how businesses get ready for sale. But you know, let, let's, let's just kick off. And in your, in your opinion, Greg, how are businesses valued nowadays? Now, what, what, what do you think the key elements are that the buyers are looking for? I think the most telling thing I can, uh, I can share on that is that most people know, and if you don't, I can tell you that recruitment businesses are valued as a multiple of pre-tax profit, typically. Mm. So if your business is making a million dollars, uh, EBIT, earnings before interest and tax, somebody might suggest that a three times earning multiple is its value. However, and this is the most important part, while it might be calculated on uh, historical earnings, mm. what the buyer is really buying is the certainty of future earnings. So a smart buyer will look under the hood mm. and will be predicting and assessing the sustainability of that business. So you can have two businesses, both with 10 staff, both making a million dollars, and one might be worth a five times multiple and the other one a two times multiple. Mm. So uh, that depends on the makeup of the business. And I guess that's what the podcast is going to be about because we need to discuss, I think, what owners need to do to make their businesses sustainable Absolutely. and attractive. Yeah. Greg, what are, you, uh, what, are you, what are you seeing as the current threats that could reduce business value that owners need to think about? Well, I mean, some of them are those that owners will recognize straight away, like uh, business mix. Yeah. So, so, you know, if you've got a preponderance of permanent gross profit, I'm going to talking about gross profit or net fee income. If you have a majority of your income from, from permanent fees, your value of your business is, is most definitely going to be less than a blend. In fact, mm. I would say a 60 70% temp GP to perm GP mm. is far more attractive because it plays into this question of sustainability. So your business mix is an issue. The, uh, uh, the consultants and the, the number of fee owners. So again, you might have a 10 person business where there's six consultants in each business and in one business, two consultants make the majority of the, of the income. That, that is high risk for a buyer. Mm. Whereas in the, other, in the other business, six people are all doing you know, 250, 300. That's actually more attractive. Mm. Because if, in the first business, if one of the key people resigned, it's a disaster. In the second business, if a person resigned, it's an irritation mm. because the sustainability is there. So I think that, that's something we'd look at. 
But we've also got to be looking at things like management weakness. If the business is bigger than the ones that I'm describing, it's the second tier of management yeah. that will dictate the value of the business. Well, no, I dictate, sorry, I won't dictate, that's too strong a word. will impact the value mm. of the business. And then technology and sustainability around uh, um, the uh, processes will impact. So these are all factors that will impact the value of the business as will an economic downturn. You mm. know, I mean, that is out of our hands. But it's something that a smart person can prepare for, even in good times. So, so, so in other words, you've got to have one eye on growth and maximizing profits, but you've got to have another on what... You know, the question I'm asking at board meetings all around the place is, and it doesn't lead to fun and hilarity, but it's a pretty important question. So I say, what would happen to this company if our gross profit in permanent dropped 50% tomorrow mm. and our temporary gross profit dropped 25% tomorrow and it didn't increase for two years, which is a very realistic scenario. Mm. And, and, and what would happen if we ran a PL and on those numbers? And most of the businesses would be going bust. Mm. And so the question is, what do we need to do to protect ourselves against that? Mm. Okay. Okay, so, so putting yourself in the shoes, and you've obviously been there, uh, of, of a business owner who realizes they're onto something, that their, their, their business is gaining credibility in the market, they're, they're becoming a go-to brand for recruiters to go and work for, and it looks like you know, one day they might be able to sell this, this business. What's the starting point? What's the number one thing they need to start thinking about in terms of preparing for that sale? Well, I think, I think it's a mindset. And, and, and I, 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 the language I like to use is that you need to be sale ready. Now, yeah. a, a lot of times I've talked to people, they say, but I'm not ready to sell. It's not the same thing. Yeah. Being sale ready doesn't mean to say you're preparing to sell. It means that should an offer come, you're in your best shape. But the same factors that make you ready to sell are the factors that make you ready to grow and to maximize profits. So, so, so clearly, you must be profitable. And, you, and the more profitable you are, given that most companies are bought on a, on a multiple of profit, yeah. you've got, that's a key thing. Right? Yeah. But beyond that, a clear strategy and, and proof of following a strategy yeah. and a future strategy is going to improve your value. And, 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 and the proof that you can execute on the strategy. Mm. The, the other thing that I would recommend is that you get your financials clean. I mean, the amount of businesses in recruitment mm. which have got the nanny through the accounts and the wife's this <laughs> and that and the husband's golf fees. And, and I understand all that and um, that's all fine. But you've got to go through due diligence. Your accounts are going to be normalized. Yeah. So the cleaner the structure is, and not only the financials, but the shareholding structure, um, the more... Uh, the more attractive it would be. And then two, two other quick things is, um, well, one really, is the management team. Proof that, you see, when you're buying a business, by definition, the owner is on the way out, either literally or certainly mentally. Yeah. So a buyer who's got half a brain, and increasingly buyers of recruitment companies do, uh, they would say, who are we left with from a leadership point of view? And so having a... Uh, an mm. up-and-comer or a team of people who are happy to go with the new buy could be critical in the value of your business. Mm. Particularly, um, you know, if, if the business is owned by two or three individuals, that's usually enough for them to keep all the management and sometimes the client relationships with them. Mm. That's not an attractive business to buy mm. because they leave. Maybe not tomorrow, but in two or three years, they're gone. So I want to buy that business with all the uh, IP uh, and relationships going out the door. I yeah. like to see that there's a second tier. Yeah. I, I had a, uh, have you done by me mentioning, I had a, a conversation with uh, Angela Cameron from Consult earlier today, and we spoke about uh, who Consult had been uh, sold to. Uh, and she was incredibly passionate 
about that family, about the Japanese family that she sold to. Yeah. Uh, and it begs the question, um, because it's very cynical to suggest that when somebody's ready to sell a business, they're just going to chase the biggest, the biggest lump of cash. But do you think it's important to think about who you're actually selling the business to? Oh, I think it's absolutely critical. I mean, see, there's a couple of things here. First of all, ironically, the bigger your business and mm. the more profit it makes, mm. the less buyers there are. So you might say, well, that's weird. Well, think of it this way. If your business is making a million dollars and you've got everything else in place, you might be worth three, four, five million dollars. Well, there's hundreds of companies in Australia that can buy that, recruitment companies. Mm. But if your business is making $10 million and it's got 70% of its GP from temp and everything else is in place, it could be worth $100 million yeah. or maybe $60 million. So how many recruitment businesses in Australia could buy that? Well, very, very few. So as you grow, you've got to identify the, the buyer profile in terms of who's, who's most likely to buy it. Is it a trade sale? Is it even private equity? Mm. Am I a target? You know, am I in a niche that a multinational might like to jump on to get into Australia? Um, am I just going to be bought by one of my competitors? And all that will help you shape the way you build your business. But there is also this other key thing that we need to get onto, which I didn't say yet. Almost inevitably, the purchase price is one issue, but the deal structure is mm. the other issue. Mm. By deal structure, I'm referring mostly to the earnout component. So no one, I shouldn't say no one, but it's extremely rare that anyone's going to offer you a lump of some lump of money for your business and say, farewell, you may leave after a month's notice. You don't get the money up front. You might get half of it. You might get a third of it. There's all different formulas. You might get the rest over two or three years. So therefore, you have to. I'll say this up front. The I've got no science behind this, but I have bought myself 15 to 20 recruitment companies over my lifespan uh, with Acorn, with people to people, with recruitment solutions. I've sold my own business three times, so I've got a pretty good perspective. And to, and to buy 15 companies, you have to have conversations with 350. Yeah. You know? So um, the reality is, in my experience and observing, most recruitment company acquisitions lead to disappointment for all parties. Most, is my view. Okay. Uh, and most of that is hinged around a mismatch between buyer and seller because they forget they're going to be in bed together for a long time. Yeah. So, uh, and, and not only that, this is something people need to understand, the whole concept of an earnout, where your future price is dictated by the profit you make typically, it can be other things like GP, but profit in, the, in year one or two after the sale, puts the buyer and the seller in conflict because the seller is trying to maximize the price in a 24-month period, which can be achieved by cutting costs. Mm. And the buyer, yes, they want more profit, but they want a business that's going to be more profitable in the future, mm. which takes a longer-term view. So you've got to think hard. And in the case of that, you know, you raised consultant. I'm on the inside there. I'm the chairman. I was one of the shareholders. I know exactly what happened there. And um, the beauty of that is it's a very, very rare scenario where the buyer is not in recruitment. Oh, okay. Yeah. That uh, you can't think of many of those rare. cases. That's rare. So as a result, the buyer had no inclination or desire to change anything. Brand, mm. management, process, mm. commission structures, all the things that can cruel an acquisition are, are the ones I just mentioned mm. and, and others. So in that particular case, they want growth, they have a philosophy that is consistent with the previous owners. The previous owners are still running the business, including me. I mean, mm. I, I, I'm, I'm there for three years at least, mm. um, and probably longer if, uh, if required. But I, I'm not executive. I'm, I'm the least important in the formula. Mm. Um, but uh, that, that, that is a very unusual scenario. And as a result, you don't have that conflict where um, 
The owner is saying, for example, I want you to make us the new owner. I want you to make as much profit as possible, but I want to change your brand. Yeah. And the seller saying, if you change my brand, it's going to screw up my opportunity. To, you know, you're going to you're going to distract my consultants. And yeah. Blah blah blah. So there's a conflict. Yeah. So you do need to think about the buyer. It's not a case of you know, if you sell your house, as long as they pay you the money, that you don't really care if they yeah. smash the bathroom or paint the wall pink. What do you care? <laughs> you're gone. Yeah. But it's not the same in recruitment. You're almost always still there. <clears throat> in some cases. In the case of the consultants, again, those owners are young. Mm. Mm. I mean, they're like 40. So it's not as if they want to sail into the sunset. Mm. Um, and, and, and sometimes a, a seller will still stay on. Mm. Definitely they'll stay on for two or three years in most cases with the earnout. And, it, and it's much more emotional. It's, it's, it's their legacy, it's their reputation, it's what they've built from, from the back bedroom. It's very, very true. And I felt that, you know, in, in, when, when we listed recruitment solutions and it was corporatized, yeah. it had to be listed company and was right thing to do felt very different it was hard to let go there's also you know a lot of people and you alluded to this indicate that the seller of a recruitment company is, has got their eye on the prize of the money and of course they do but i don't know very many owners of recruitment companies who don't have very strong relationships with their key staff and they want the best for them and you know they don't want the thought that those people will lose their jobs or yeah pushed into a corner or correct you know have have their future screwed up in any way so it's an, it's an emotional thing yeah and you yeah. think about the buyer yeah and then what about you know putting yourself into the into the mind of the seller greg uh, when you think about the mindset of the seller when it comes to the value of the business is there anything to watch out for there well look i've been on both sides and it's exactly the same i, I, I use houses selling houses a lot too because with recruiting companies as well as with selling houses it's very seldom you get a seller who doesn't wildly overestimate the value of their business or their house. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've had con- I have conversations with owners of recruitment companies every day of my life, uh, literally, li- probably literally, even on weekends by bloody LinkedIn, somebody's asking me a question. And um, they inevitably think their business is worth a lot more than it is. And, and they inevitably look at some big public sale. China McLeod sold for nine times EBIT. So my business must be worth nine times even. Well, your business is three people around the <coughs> kitchen table. No, it's worth absolutely nothing. Yeah. So um, you've got to, the question I like to say to people is, would you buy your company? Knowing what you know about your company, would you buy it? Mm. And if you were to buy it, what would you know you'd have to fix? Because a astute buyer will find that out. Mm. So, you know, then fix those things. If you know that yeah, it looks good and your perm fees are X, Y, Z, but you know deep down that, you know, 80% of your GP come from one client yeah. and that client's PSL or PSA is up for review. Well, you wouldn't buy your own business because you know it's risky. Well, someone will find that out. So fix that thing. Yeah. Um, focus on what the buyer will see. What are the future risks? How are they going to view it? That is the best advice I can give a seller because they need to prepare it for sales, just like selling a house. If you do up the garden and paint the house, that's good. But someone's going to get a report done that shows that your house is... Uh, leaking mm. uh, and, and, and they won't buy it so you have to fix it one way or the other mm. first okay it's, so you have touched on this but if you can kind of expand what, what, what do you see as the characteristics of a business that might be more valuable than, than another similar sized sure. business I, I think the first thing to do is um, as a seller because this is what the buyer will do is to focus on what the weakest link in your, in your organisation is and, and fix that mm. so by that, I mean, what, what, what's your weakest link? Well, your technology is ancient. And yeah, your consultants are making good billings, but mostly they're doing it off the back of Excel spreadsheets and their memories. Uh, that is not a saleable business or it will be deeply devalued. 
Um, so look at the points of failure. The mix of annuity revenue, I mean, I can't overemphasize this. You know, I get people saying to me, oh, I don't like temp, I love perm, it's this. Well, it's not about love, it's about value. Mm. And um, a permanent business, you know, we did see some permanent businesses sell for crazy multiples at the peak of the last boom. Don't think you're going to see it again. People are looking. There might be some exceptions where it's very niche and where the buyer, sorry, where the seller's prepared to stay for a long time and have a long earnout. That mm. maybe. But you know, if you have a long earnout, you end up earning almost the same as you would have taken out of the business in dividends. So you've got to ask yourself why you would do it. So the business mix is important. The revenue sources are important. So are they coming from just two or three or four consultants, or is there a wide variety of of sources? Um, and equally wide variety of clients. You don't want more than 10% of your gross profit from any one client. Mm. Anything above that is risky for a buyer. Because mm. if that client, so if, you, if your business is turning out, you've got $10 million in GP and a million dollars is coming from one client, mm. your business is probably making a million dollars. Well, if you lost that client, it's making nothing. So that's not attractive. So uh, other things that build sustainability and make a business more valuable is uh, technology and a, a business that has a high amount uh, a high amount of process, processization, in fact, servitization, yeah. where you, know, you don't want to go into business to people say, oh, I'm training, that's done by Bob, he does all the training. And Betty, she knows how to work the database. You don't want to hear that. Yeah. You want a system where the, 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 the value is, is built into the, into the technology as much as it is into the people. It's always the people, that's never going to go. But yeah. if it's in the hands of the people, then it's less, it's less valuable. Uh, another thing I think is interesting, and I've got a lot more I can talk to you about, but uh, who actually owns the client relationships? Mm. There's plenty of, of companies, and you'd know this, where there's a consultant billing 300000 and there's two consultants billing 300000 and that looks good. But actually, the relationship with the clients is held by the team leader or even the owner who funnels the work to them. And they're good transactors, no disrespect. But mm. if that person mm. wasn't there, they can't win business or build relationships. Mm. And... And if that is sniffed out by a buyer, they'll devalue your business dramatically because of the risk factor. Mm. It's the sustainability going, going forward. So that, those are some of the uh, the main things. A um, couple of other things I would I would mention is yes, the management team, a, a track record of growth. If you can point um, Pete to a track record of growth, I mean a buyer loves to see made a million dollars in in two thousand and fifteen, one point three in sixteen, one point eight in you know loves that because it's. Past behavior is at least some indicator of future behavior yeah. and future results. But, you know, made a million dollars, made 100,000, made 800, made 200. That scares people. Uh, so a track record is, is good. If there's some rigor around future uh, profitability, then it's definitely attractive. Niche and specialization is a two-edged sword. Being niche can be very attractive yeah. and very specialized because you're deep in there. But being very niched to a small sector in includes risk yeah. because what happens if the clients and that's you know if you were a niche provider to the taxi industry five years ago well I'm, you know just I'm not recruitment but if yeah. whatever you sold was to the taxi industry the yeah. taxi industry is basically um, being decimated by Uber well then if that's all you did maybe not a great example because you could probably sell whatever it was to Uber but you know what I mean if an industry so if you very it's better you were niched in transport than you were niched in taxis because that's that's hyper niched mm. So while it can be attractive and very, very profitable, uh, it can also be risky. PSLs can be attractive, but only if they, you know, the thing about PSLs, um, 
which stands, as you know, for preferred supplier list, is most of them are not preferred at all. Mm. You're one of 12 people. Where's the preferential treatment? All you've got is a license to hunt. No one will pay you extra for that. But if it's a legitimate PSL where you've got a lot of business uh, guaranteed at acceptable margins, mm. then uh, that's going to add to your value. And by the way, on the question of margins, businesses with high, high volume, low margin sort of um, preponderance of that sort of business will attract a low multiple for sure, even mm. if they're profitable, because they're so hard to, uh, to scale. Greg, can we talk about the people, the humans building the businesses? Because it's, 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 it's pretty obvious that some people simply have the ability, the drive, the charisma, the vision to build businesses. And some people try and they don't and they fail. And we see it all the time. Yeah. And, and, and you look at these people um, and on paper, they should be able to build successful businesses, but they don't. So what is it about the human that's the difference between the succeeder and the failure? Well, there's a number of factors. I mean, you're quite right, as you may not know, but I'll give you the stat. In this country and in the UK, 80% of recruitment companies have less than 10 staff. Right? So yeah. we are a business of micro, we are an industry of micro businesses. Mm. And mostly it's because it started by a very good recruiter who might be a good salesperson, and they've got a little bit of energy and charisma, they can build 10 people around them. From 10 to 20 people, I call the valley of death. Very few people can do that. Yeah. Because to get that, you've got to build a second tier of management. And that is a totally different skill. Success in business is made up of three things broadly. Character, yeah. strategy, and implementation. You've got to have the character, which includes the, uh, the, the energy, the resilience, the uh, personality, etc. But you've got to have a good strategy, but the amount of board tables I've sat around in my life where there's been strategy discussed, that has never been effectively implemented. The ability to actually implement is what most people fail. Mm. How many times, I mean, you've been in recruitment, how many times do you hear people saying, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, never gets followed through. And most people in management don't, can't do that. And they can't do it because they don't have that follow through mentality. But also they can't do it because they're gravitating back to things that they shouldn't be doing. So if you've got an owner of a 10-person recruitment company who still is the highest bidder in that company, you know they'll never grow. Mm. Because he or she has to pass on the relationships which they're scared to do, build a second tier of management, and then use their energy to implement the strategy, which is we're going to hire six more people, we're going to diversify from accounting into business support, we're going to open an office in Parramatta. All those are strategic things, but they need implementation. And mm. most people in business cannot implement it. Mm. How important is it, do you think, to try to implement you know, things like values and strategy and culture on the very first day you open the doors? Or, I see so many businesses, they start to think about this stuff seven or eight years down the track. And I just see it as wasted time. I think, I think the most successful businesses I've been involved in, and most of them have been successful, there have been a few that haven't been as cheap what we'd like as you'd expect, um, but, but always it started with great clarity about A, what we're trying mm. to achieve, if not in the distant future, certainly in three years, the type of people we want to work with, the type of people we don't want to work with. And that includes both colleagues and clients. Mm. And, and, and behaviours we value and behaviours we will not tolerate. And I think if you are able to articulate those, agree those, and stick to those, you will build a business that's much stronger than one that is haphazard, even if that one's got more money to build. Mm. And the reason for that is people stay there because they believe in the ethos. Now, this, this sounds a little bit on, in the area of airy-fairy. You, you don't get too many people that are less like that than me, but that is what I have seen mm. and proven to be true. And you see it in, 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 in 
in what I call the prima donna recruit. So a recruiter, a recruitment company starts with that philosophy and they stick to it. Except in year three, Bob becomes a big biller. He's billing six, seven hundred thousand a year. And, and, and along with the big billing comes an arrogance and a cockiness and a disrespect. And, and, and Bob now no longer thinks he has to come into meetings sometimes and he doesn't have to live the company values. He's rude to the receptionist because, you know, he's a big biller. And the owner does not have the courage to face it down because they put fees above ethos. Mm. And fees never beat ethos. Mm. Because once you do that, your other people look around and go, our values are bullshit. We say we treat people with respect. And I get my hands slapped if I'm not, you know, following the vision. Bob can do what he likes because he's a big biller. And that just crushes. Now, that mm. business will never grow. Because people will leave. Have you ever fired a million dollar biller, Greg? I've filed plenty of people who are the biggest billers in the company. Yeah. Oh, let me rephrase that. I've very rarely had to fire them, but I faced them up down. Yeah. Yeah. I've called them aside and said, mate, we love you. You're important. You're a great recruiter. But you're a bit of a dickhead. And we're going to have to stop that because we don't have dickheads here. Yeah. And now that may be paraphrasing it, but I've literally said that plenty of times. But the secret is, I don't want to sound like some big macho guy. I don't look forward to that. But the secret is, nip it in the bud early. Yeah. It's when the first behavior starts to exhibit. that you say, and, you can, and they can actually go like this. Bob, mate, you know how we say, we all come to meetings on time? Yeah. Well, you come to the meetings three times late, and that's putting you in a tricky position, mate. We, we respect you. People look up to you. You're setting a bad example. You're making it tough for me. Can I get your help? I need you. Come back on board. That often works, but if it's not that, it's making you behaving like a dickhead. We don't have dickheads, so do you want to be with us, or what's mm. your plan? Mm. And uh, so have I fired people? Yes, but very rarely, because if you get in there early enough, they can see the light. It's when they are allowed to become, and believe their own PR, mm. that you will destroy your business by chasing the 600,000 of the prima donna, when in actual fact, what's at risk is the 5 million of the other 20 people. Mm. And I suspect they'd probably turn around in a couple of years' time and thank you for the house. Uh, I've had street. people stop me in the street and it happened, you know, I've been around a long time and the people I don't even recognise and say, the day you told me that, I was so pissed off with you. Yeah. But now I see why, you, and now I say the same things to my staff. That's yeah. happened to me 50 times. Yeah. And, you know, as I like to say to people, no one will thank you in management except maybe 30 years later and still be grateful. Yeah. <laughs> so getting back to uh, a, a sale process, you, you have successfully sold the, uh, the business. Yep. What do we need to, to, to think about in terms of after sales considerations? Well, there's a lot there. You know, uh, as I said, most, most transactions disappoint. So the, the big thing that I would say is all the contentious issues, and I can tell you what they are, I will, mm. should be agreed prior to sale. If you're a seller and the buyer says, oh, mate, look, listen, we'll deal with the issue of the Melbourne office afterwards. Or, look, brand, we're open to ideas, but let's discuss brand afterwards. That's a problem. Because the seller thinks, okay, brand's not important, then we'll keep the same brand for two years and then we'll merge them. The buyer thinks, day three, I'm going to change the brand. And so um, there's a big misalignment of interest, as I explained, first of all, on the earnouts. You know, where, where mostly earnouts around profit going forward, the vendor wants to maximize the profit, and maybe the way to do that is to cut the advertising, let um, a couple of trainees go, uh, cut the beer on a Friday, and driving for the profit. Whereas the owner, the new owner, yes, they want profit, but they want sustainability. So um, other things that can be, uh, so, so brand is important. Uh, the roles of the, she, what's going to happen to the, First of all, the, the company being bought, is it going to be allowed to stand alone or is it being merged with the buyer? Mm. Big issue, right? So mm. we're going to merge our three offices. Well, who's going to be the manager? 
what database are we going to use? Mm. What commission structures are going to prevail? And, and yes, the seller might have to be realistic and realise you know, once you've sold your business, you've sold your business, you're not the owner. But they need to negotiate that, look, we're not going to change commission structures for a year. We're going to introduce brand, we'll do this way, it'll be, um, you know, it'll be Greg Savage recruitment and in small owned by Mint and then it'll be Mint incorporating Greg Savage and eventually Greg Savage will go over it to mm. you. Whatever the agreement is. So, and then it can be communicated to the staff because I assure you, the staff on the sell side are going to be nervous. And sometimes on the buy side too because they don't know what's going to happen to them. So systems, important. Brand, important. Um, the role of the vendor is often often a matter of great contention. Mm. I was running my business, now I'm almost like a team leader in this new role. So it needs to be totally spelt out what, what the vendor's role is going to be. Now sometimes the vendor's quite happy to, 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 to not have the stress. In fact, they're quite likely after six months to go to three days and that can all be negotiated too. Mm. And it just needs to be pragmatically worked out. But these are the things that go wrong. And, and then also performance expectations. Yes, there's the dollar earnout, but there's the <coughs> profit earnout. Okay. But there's other performance expectations that have to be have to be uh, resolved. So all, all these things, the big ones are brand, commission structures, leadership roles, uh, technology. You, we use um, ATS A. You, we use ATS B. Yeah. What, what's going to happen? Um, and also merging of businesses. Yeah. But, you know what's going to happen there. Um, those five or six things are the things that cause the greatest stress and um, are a catalyst for big disappointment, sometimes legal action, but often um, a fall off in morale and motivation, staff leaving. I mean, you buy a business, and, you know, why would you buy a business and then, and then take decisions that, that encourage the staff to leave mm. once you've just paid for? So buyers have to be smart too. And it's very interesting watching big companies buy smaller companies. Some of them merge them in straight away. Mm. And others keep a separate brand. Mm. Uh, and I guess it's a case-by-case, case uh, they seem to have strategies on that. It's a case-by-case case, uh, um, basis, but what, what I've looked at, and it's a, it is a lot to do with the goals of the vendor. I mean, if you're, if you're buying a business that's nicely set up with an owner, but she's got five team leaders coming through, and the owner had been winding down already and spending two days, you know, on a beach house or whatever, mm. she can be phased out in a year quite happily. And you can have one year earnout. But where there's three owners and they're all doing the work, you don't want to buy a business and phase them out too quickly because you end up having bought nothing. How many potential uh, business purchases and sales do you see fall over uh, at the 11th hour? Um, a great many. I was mm. talking to somebody yesterday who was looking for an advisor on their board and he was telling me that he had got right down to the 11th hour literally was his phrase yeah. as well just yesterday and it fell over over a misunderstanding that really should have been cleared up at the very very beginning really oh yeah really crazy and I said why wasn't that and he said I oh, know and it was just six months of work it was at least six months yeah. of work and the amount you see you've got to be so careful because the, you mentioned work the amount of work that goes into an acquisition by both parties and the distraction factor mm. and, and, and the risk of unsettling staff mm. And, 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 and the lack of focus on, um, you know, I, I was involved with a big thing that fell over yesterday, but it fell over because I provoked it to fall over by encouraging the conversation around valuation of the two businesses, of merge, of the two, two, 
to be had early. And other people in the deal were like, we're only at the um, getting to know you stage, this is too quick. And I'm like, if we can't agree this, we're like, let's not, let's not it's taking so much time. Mm. We're thinking about this. We even told our senior management who are now thinking about this. It's just, it's just strap. And there was very quickly we were miles away. So if you shake hands, have a kiss, and go, yeah. good, yeah. let's concentrate on our own business. So I learned that, you know, that, that a lot of them can fall over and it's best. Yes, there's a bit of a seduction and a get to know you, of course. And we have to believe and trust each other. But it's very important to get to the deal breakers soon yeah. and get them off the table. Yeah. Price. Um, roles, uh, brand, the yeah. things I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Let's have them resolved, and then we can, then yeah, we can, yeah. Have, you know, do the process because the process with due diligence and lawyers and you know, yeah, yeah, takes a long time. So, Greg, this has been a, a kind of a thirty-minute kind of snapshot into uh, everything M and A related, but I'm assuming that you touch on this in, in far more detail in your book. I do. And I'm glad you brought up my book, What a Coincidence. <laughs> I, I've written a book, it's called The Savage Truth. It, uh, it covers, uh, I, think, I think the tagline is um, lessons in business, uh, people in life or something from 40 years in recruitment. January next year, I would have been in recruitment 40 years. Um, and um, it's 310 pages covering the whole, the whole journey, including uh, my belief on what makes a great recruiter. Yeah including the three big stories or the four big stories, um, recruitment solutions, AQUIN, people to people, uh, and including a lot about acquisitions, uh, building all the stuff I've spoken about here and much more detail about how to build your business for sale is in there. Um, and, and plenty of anecdotes and a lot of facts. I'm able to got permission from all the companies I've worked for. Um, you know, some of them were listed and some of my own, so that wasn't difficult. But others like Aikman, still owned by other people, got mm. their permission to put the auditors' numbers in there. So, so when I tell a story and I say I took the business from five to 100, I did. But it always ends up with, or often ends up with, but then it went from 100 to 60. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and what did that mean? And it meant tremendous pain. Uh, so the book is available. It's called The Savage Truth. You can go to my website, which is www.gregsavage.com.au. And there's a tab there. Maybe there's even a pop-up because we want you to buy the book, which will take you to um, four, four online booksellers where you can pre-buy it. It'll be available in mid-October, but you can buy it now for delivery then. And then it'll be in bookstores and everything else. Um, uh, frankly, I was reluctant to write a book. I thought, I thought to myself, what a waste of time, who would buy it? Um, but then I thought, it's a bit of a legacy for me. You know, I'm writing out everything I know, or most and some good, funny stories as well. Most of them reflect badly on me. Um, and uh, it'll help some people, I hope. Yeah. You don't make money out of uh, writing books, let me tell you. I, I can make more money in one afternoon speech to a client than I could out of a book. But I really want people to read it because, or, or dip into it, because I, I, I think, um, you know, I'd love to have read a book like that when I was a yeah. young recruiter. Yeah, um, invaluable. So it, it's there and um, be available in mid-October. So please, if, if you're interested, uh, it's available now. Greg, if you look back over the last 40 years, you know, if you could just, if you could just jump in into, a, into a time machine and relive any golden period of your 40-year career but, and, and do it again because you enjoyed it so much, what period of time would you, would you relive? I've been so fortunate to have had so much fun in so many different places and I've had a lot of downtimes, of course, recessions, difficult things that happen in life and business. But I would say the three years of starting Recruitment Solutions when we... Well, uh, you know, I was working for Accountancy Placements, which was bought by Hayes. Hayes was a, Hayes was a um, logistics company prior to that. It's an interesting story. And they, 
I was in London prior that, you see Hayes trucks going by, they're moving meat mm. around. They weren't in recruitment at all. And they got into recruitment, and, and we, naively, the three of us who were running the business in Australia, it was a big business, turning over 40 million in 1986, mm. and making 4 million, and having an owner, but we, I was a director at 27, and my career was you know, really looking good. And we said to Hayes, hey, could we, could we have equity in, in your business? And they said, certainly not. They were very nice people, but they, they weren't going to give us equity. So we started our own business and we grew from nothing to 13 million in three and a half years. Then the recession came and went back to nine. That's all in the book. But it was a fabulous, exciting, you know, I had no money. I'd borrowed 15,000 from my dad to start that business. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we believed in what we did. We started with nine people on day one. So that was quite adventurous and it grew and it was tremendously exciting. So that was one golden period in running my own business. But I also loved my year, years of being a recruiter in London in the early 80s. It was a different world. And starting Aquint or, or growing Aquint was exhilarating. You know, I was, it was international, it was Asia, it was Europe, it was, and I was, I didn't know very anything about international, but we, we yeah. felt that way. And so there lots of exciting times. But if you had to pick one, it would be the recruitment solutions journey. And then to end up listing that on the stock exchange and, in the business, it's not the money, but the business being valued at, you know, like, I don't know, in fact, whatever it says on that thing there, $25 million. Yeah, you've got just under $24 million. And, yeah. and then by that, by that afternoon, the share price had increased more than 10%, so now, now it was worth $30 million. Yeah. And a year later, $60 million. I mean, I was in a minor shell. I don't want to emphasize the money. I mean, I'm using that as a scorecard. And it's exciting when you create from nothing something that people put such a value on. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and, and because the value reflects... The quality, yeah, and the quality reflects the people, and the people reflects your ability to grow the business, and in the end, that's what's very exciting. Mm. Well, Greg, you're still spinning plenty of plates at the moment, but um, what's next? The book's done. What next? Well, the book's done. Um, I, I uh, and, and there'll be some speaking tours in relation to that, and, and that, that's all sort of part, part and parcel. Look, one thing about writing the book is I'm, I might be a pretty thick person, but it did bring home the fact to me that more of my career is behind me than in front of me. <laughs> Um, and I think I'm in a very, very fortunate stage of life where I'm able to make a contribution to companies by being an advisor, but I don't have to do the work. <laughs> and not only that, I learn as much from them as they learn from me because I'm on the inside of 14 companies. What a privilege that yeah. is to sit around with people who trust you and share their, their ideas and their strategies and, 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 and then to help. And I think I'll continue with that. Um, Maybe winding down a bit for the foreseeable future. I still invest in recruitment companies and HR tech companies. I usually take an interest in those. Mm. Video my job, live hire, others. I'm interested in how technology is going to affect our industry. And, and I'd love to be involved in businesses that change it for the good. And those businesses typically are going to have great technology, but still understand that, business, that recruitment has a human element. If we get that blend right, then uh, that's what I want to focus on. But, you know... And uh, people ask me, hey, you're going to England to do a speaking tour. That is true, but if you follow the itinerary, you'll, you'll notice that it's the same time as an ashes test. <laughs> and then people say, you're in Japan speaking to one of your clients. Yes, that is true, but it's also in the last week of the Rugby World Cup. Yeah, yeah. And, and so there is always, nowadays, um, the yin with the yang. Whereas when I was working hard, it was all yang. Yeah. Well, Greg, genuinely, thank you so much. I was looking for five or six pearls of wisdom, but I think there's about 156 pearls of wisdom. Um, and, you know, I, I, I encourage everybody to pick up the savage truth and, and, you know, learn more about how to do this, how to build and sell a business. Thank you very much. I, I really hope that it helps people. 
I appreciate being on your show. It's a privilege. And thank you for the bottle of wine. I will drink that possibly tonight. <laughs> Good, man. Enjoy. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Recruitment Journeys podcast. Really hope you enjoyed it. Now, while we're passionate about bringing inspirational recruitment stories to our network via this podcast series, Recruitment to Recruitment is our bread and butter and our day job. So if you are a recruiter thinking about your next career chapter or your recruitment journey, see what I did there? We're always keen to have a confidential discussion with recruiters about what's going on in the market. So please feel free to contact me in the strictest of confidence on 0432 666701 or email me at pete at Thank you so much for listening and please watch out for our next inspirational podcast interview coming very soon.